Welcome to the Operation Chris podcast. I'm Dakota Osborne. And I'm Autumn Smith. We are the co-hosts of today's episode. Operation Crest is an effort from the 957 Project to empower high school students like us to preserve memories of America's veterans and to share their stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. Each of these interviews will be donated to the Library of Congress to be preserved for future generations. And you can hear other episodes of this show wherever you get this podcast. Be sure to stick around at the end of this episode to hear our reflection on what we learned during the following conversation. Learn more at www.the957project.org slash Operation Crest. And now, let's begin the show. Today, we are interviewing Kayton Johnson. Kayton Johnson is a retired Army Lieutenant Colonel with over 22 years of service. He is from Isle of Palms, South Carolina, and is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point. He served as an Apache attack helicopter pilot with the 101st Airborne Division, 3rd Infantry Division, and 1st Cavalry Division. He also served on Army and Department of Defense level staff in the Pentagon. Caton's service included six combat deployments to Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. He is a recipient of the Legion of Merit, three Broad Star Medals, Defense Meritorious Service Medal, five Meritorious Service Medals, four Air Medals, Army Accommodation Medal, Army Achievement Medal, Combat Action Badge, Senior Aviator Badge, Air Assault Badge, and Parachutist Badge. Caton is married to fellow Soldier for Life and retired Lieutenant Colonel Robin Johnson. Since retiring in 2021, Caton has spent his time supporting his wife's career in comedy, parenting their two children, and assisting the Army with one of their talent assessment and selection programs. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are going to start by talking about your early life. Tell us where you grew up and a little bit about your childhood. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, Isle of Palm, South Carolina, it's a, a barrier island off the coast of uh, Charleston. So we're we're in the Charleston area. Lots of history and 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 Southern culture here here in Charleston. But uh, growing up on the beach, uh, we were always in or on the water. Um, any chance we got, uh, there were times where we we would have boats around the school that I went to, and we try and sneak out and get on the boat in the middle of school and and take off for a couple hours. Uh, but but that wasn't as often as we would have liked. But uh, it, was, it was a real unique place to grow up in. Um, and fortunately, I, I'm, I'm able to be back in that area and my, my children receiving a similar experience of, of getting a lot of saltwater time. Did you exhibit any characteristics when you were young that you think prepared you or led you to a career in the military? I, I don't. I don't know. That might be a better, better question for my parents. Um, so the military, although my, my family, you know, my, my family had some history in, in the military. Uh, my grandfather served in World War II, my, my father in, in Vietnam. Um, my, by the time I came along, their military service was over. So it, it wasn't like I had this lifelong shaping to, to be in the military. I certainly didn't have these childhood dreams of going and serving in the military. Um, so I, I think it was more about um, m- my parents raising me with certain values, maybe, um, and, and having a, a values-based lifestyle uh, before I, I entered into the military that, that made that feel like a good fit once I actually once I actually went into a military environment. Okay. Tell us a little bit about what that experience at West Point was like for you as a young student. Yeah, it was cold. You, uh, you know, I, I that's how I describe it initially. Just, of course, there was the shock of you you leave home. You know, I, I graduated high school three weeks later. I'm sitting at West Point wondering what I got myself into. Uh, people yelling at you and, and wanting to be strict and rigid. And I was this easygoing kind of guy from, from South Carolina that a lot didn't get under my skin, but I also kind of enjoyed my time too. But um, 
but I kind of had um, an affinity for math and sciences, which was a good fit in, in that environment of an engineering school like West Point. Um, but I, I tell you that that first winter that I spent at West Point, there were record snowfalls. Uh, there were snowflakes the size of a baseball it felt like smacking you in the ear while you're, you're standing out there in formation and um and that's kind of the one one aspect of it that really shocked me to the point of you know i'm not sure i want to stay here um i i don't i don't know if i care for this kind of thing so that first year i i really contemplated hey i'm i think i'm going to leave here to the point that i applied to some other colleges my first year and, and had some serious um, some serious thoughts about about leaving and, and coming back to the south and, and being in a place that was uh, wasn't it is strict or demanding of your time. Um, thankfully, I, I had some incredible mentors that uh, and, and family members that, that encouraged me to stay there. Um, I, I think it, it, it really did benefit me in the long haul to, to be there. Uh, I, I definitely enjoyed my time there. And of course, the, the friends that I made, uh, the classmates that, that I uh, cherish their friendships to this day and still remain in contact with, um, those are, are kind of the most rewarding aspects of me being able to stay at West Point through, through the full four years. What was the greatest lesson or skill that you learned while you were there? Oh, wow. Uh, it, it, it probably had to do with, with valuing a, another perspective and, and really putting things into perspective of um, what's the impact of this thing, right? Uh, is, it, is it something that's a life or death situation or is it something that, that Hey, I'm kind of need to learn a lesson from this, but it's not it's not something that is earth shattering um, of of a nature where if you fail to do it, the potential for someone to be injured or, or really hurt. Um, and and a lot of times in life, I think that we tend to overemphasize some of the smaller things that in the in in the long haul and in the big picture, it might not be that big a deal. Um, sometimes we we think that oh my gosh, uh, you know I'm I'm running late for this event or uh, I maybe I didn't didn't perform at my peak in in another time in my life and and all of a sudden the the residual impact is just going to ruin things and and we try to blow it up in our heads, but that's. That's not always the case. And, and when we can come to the realization through appreciating the perspective of something uh, and put the right perspective on an event, then we can really truly learn from it. And we can really truly enjoy that time while we're, while we're um, in the middle of that event. Well, let's talk a little about your investment enlistment. What do you remember about the day you decided you were going to join the military? So for me, um, West Point's one of those, uh, one of our, our military academies for our nation, one of the commissioning sources of many um, uh, different pathways into becoming an officer in our arm or in our armed forces. And in order to, to gain entry and or gain admission into one of the military academies like West Point or Annapolis or, or the Air Force Academy, um, you you have to apply to it like you would a regular college. And I wasn't real, that wasn't at the top of my list by any means. I thought that was, I had visited West Point once when I was a little kid on a summer vacation and, and figured, learned about a little bit about what it was like to be there and figured, yeah, you know, I'm not smart enough or I'm not good enough to go to uh, to one of those academies. So 
you first have to uh, apply just like you would a regular college and get admitted there. And then the other thing that, that is a little bit unique about our academies is you have to gain uh, uh, a recommendation from one of the congressmen to go there and they have limited numbers that they can uh, recommend to go to the academies. So um, I, I remember, uh, I, I think it came in the mail um, when I, I finally received my acceptance and my nomination from my congressman to go to West Point. And the reason that I, that I even started that path in the first place was, hey, it, I, I hear you, you go to these academies for free. And, and I pursued that because that was a pathway to a free education similar to any other scholarship. So that was kind of the most attractive nature of it to me in the beginning. Um, that certainly wasn't the reason that I stuck around and served in the Army for over 20 years. But uh, but I, it, it was definitely a, a primary consideration as I was applying and, and going into, uh, into West Point. So I don't remember a whole lot. There's nothing that really sticks out about uh, about getting that nomination, other than wow, I I actually made it. You know, um, then when I told some people about it, some of my high school teachers, whatever, I, I think the the overwhelming response was really you. <laughs> You know, they were a little bit surprised too. They were like, "Yeah, I didn't even know you were applying, but but good on you." Um, and, and I think some of them that didn't really understand it thought I had enlisted in in the army and I was going off to boot camp, uh, not realizing that it would be a, a very competitive collegiate experience as well. How did the people in your life react to your decision to join the military? Um. Incredibly supportive, um, it, it, especially because my my decision to to join the military was was a decision really to attend West Point, and um, it's uh, has an incredible reputation for the leadership training that occurs there, uh, and, and it definitely lays one of one of probably one of the best, if not the best. Um, leadership foundations in people uh, for our country's um, collegiate programs anyway. And, and I, I am proud that I went there. I, I definitely gained a lot of experience there and, and maybe understand now why my, especially, especially my father, why, why he was uh, so proud for me to go there. He, he was, incredibly influential in in that in that arduous kind of application process of, of pushing me to go or not pushing me to go there but pushing for me to apply for that opportunity my parents always always parented me in in a way that they wouldn't force me to make a decision they would just force me to apply so that i then had had the the choice to make uh, they wanted me to have those choices like like many parents would want to for their children. Are there any conversations from your friends or family that stand out from that time? Uh, not not exceptionally. I mean, the people stand out, not the individual conversations. Um, the the people there there's some high school uh, instructors that that I had, there were some, some leaders in different organizations that I had, uh, you know, I'm involved in, as, as most kids are, you're involved in a bunch of different activities as, as a young person. So whether it was sports coaches or, or leaders in, in the church I went to, or, or, uh, people in the school I went to, like the teachers, or even in my family, uh, aunts and uncles and, and parents and grandparents, that really, uh, really influenced me overall and in, into becoming the person I am today. Uh, I remember all of them demonstrating support for, for that pathway. 
Okay, so when most people think about boot camp, they think about how mentally and physically demanding it is. Talk to us a little about your boot camp and early training experiences. So, so going to West Point, uh, um, your first summer there, I, I talked about how I graduated high school and most people, they graduate high school and they start college several months later, right? They have that summer kind of off. Well, for me, that summer was about three weeks. Um, and then I showed up to West Point with uh, a long, long blonde hair because I spent my days surfing and, and hanging out at the beach. And I, I see y'all kind of chuckling a little bit now because, of course, I don't have any hair. So <laughs> thinking of me with long hair is uh, kind, of a, kind of a humorous picture. But I, I had this long hair, and of course that goes away on day one, right? You always see the videos of, of basic training for military folks of the haircut being this this crucible event. Um, but the hair goes away, and of course they begin to assimilate you into the military culture, and and you're waking up early, you're doing physical training, you're learning uh, different um, aspects of military life that are going to be important into shaping you into a, a contributing member of the military um but there's a lot of cool parts of it too um not too many of my friends spent their summer after high school throwing hand grenades and, and shooting machine guns either um and, and learning about about the application of some of those aspects of the military life as well were were incredibly enjoyable and valuable. I mean, into a an eighteen year old kid, man, that's cool. That's cool stuff to to go and do. Um, so those are aspects I think of of basic training. That yes, there there were minimally challenging parts. I mean, I already shared with y'all a little bit about how. I was ready to come home kind of after that first year and, and thankfully changed my mind um, because of just all the demands on your time. There's always more uh, thrown at you than you can accomplish, but that's a little bit by design, right? That's by design to help help you work through problem sets in your head of how you're going to prioritize time and prioritize tasks so that when you are placed into an environment where the the result is a life or death situation then then you can appropriately prioritize things to to be a contributing member of, of whatever team you're a part of in the military looking back on the time that you were in boot camp what key knowledge skills and abilities and experiences were most valuable to you as you continued your career in the military so it, it's got to go back to to prioritizing the the task. It's got to go back to understanding the the impact of it, so that um, and, and being able to dismiss those those things that don't get done that aren't really going to have an impact on the overall uh, overall result of what happens. Um, if if you're getting mentally and 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 physically worked up and stressed over uh, things that don't really have an impact in the grand scheme of things, it's going to be a real stressful life. It's going to be a real stressful event for whatever's coming up. Uh, being able to mentally understand where you need to exert stress um, and where you need to exert your your influence over things I, I think that's got to be the number one thing that that kind of came out not only came out of basic because I, I definitely didn't have that mastered when i was done with a few weeks of training but it's something where seeds were planted and a foundation began that that i i developed and matured over time and I, I think that probably served me the best as, as I continued through my military career. During all those rough times, did you have a sergeant or instructor from boot camp that gave you a piece of advice that has stuck to you? 
stuck with you till now? If so, what is that advice and how did it impact you? I, I won't say it necessarily came from basic. Um, uh, there were there were times where I talked about some of the mentors that I that I reached out to while I was at West Point during my first year because although we have our basic training in the first few weeks, there's uh, about three quarters of of that first year are under um, under pretty strict rules for for how we conduct ourselves as, as freshmen or, or what we call plebes at West Point. Um, and and it's, a, it's a demanding year on you. Um, as I communicated with some of my mentors back home, the, the idea that, that you'll get through this, that this isn't something that will, will um, you know, define you in some negative way that you'll get through this first year and things change and they'll get better and you're going to learn and mature through this experience. Um, there wasn't this, this key piece of information or key conversation that stood out, but the fact that you're, you're going to make it through um, that, that encouragement, that idea that you're going to get through this and and you'll be better for it. That was probably the thing that stuck with me the most. If it's okay with you, let's transition into discussing your time in service and your deployments. First, before we get into the specific details about your various deployments, your bio says that you served as an Apache attack helicopter pilot. Can you explain a little to our audience what an Apache attack helicopter pilot does and perhaps what led you in that direction of military service? Sure. Um, it, it, first, how I uh, selected becoming an Apache pilot. So we, we don't necessarily select the aircraft first. We select the branch that we're going to serve in. And by branch, I don't mean Army versus Navy. I mean, while we're at West Point, we first set up our, our preferences of whether we're gonna be an infantry officer or an artillery officer, or logistics or aviation. And and for me, uh, we set those preferences and aviation sounded cool. I, man, get to go fly helicopters, that, that sounds pretty fun. So uh, of course I, I listed that number one and lo and behold, I, I was able to be slotted as an aviation officer. And then after graduation, uh, we go to flight school, and while we're in flight school, we once again, we preference things and preference what aircraft we're going to fly, and um, and after preferencing the, the aircraft we're going to fly, I was assigned to, to fly Apache helicopters, which for me, not only was I, I talked about being on the beach and, and surfing a lot, but I also spent a lot of time in the woods. I enjoyed hunting and fishing and that sort of stuff being outdoors um so my buddies used to tell me you're you're a guy with a, a gun safe and you like to spend time out in the out in the woods hunting things so it kind of makes sense that you're you're flying an attack helicopter um an apache is a it's a two-person aircraft um that is designed to to go out and look for look for things, do reconnaissance, and, and then uh, if able to, to destroy the targets with all of its weapon systems. So um, that's what an, uh, an Apache attack helicopter is. Um, and kind of my pathway into to being able to fly one. Um, I recall the, the first time that I got to fly in one and you, you pick that thing up to a hover and you look out either side and you see rocket pods and and missile launchers on your wings and you think man this is the coolest thing in the world right uh, you, you feel just awesome flying that thing so that was uh my experience when, when i first first got into it now let's talk a little about deployment I know that a lot of my peers and probably much of the civilian world doesn't quite understand the complexities and details of how deployments work. 
How were your expectations of deployment different from the reality of your first deployment? Um, so I'll say this to begin with is not one of my deployments was exactly like another. Um, my deployments began in, uh, in early 2002 and my last one ended in 2018 and you you think about um you think about what was happening in our country throughout that time and and how different um how different theaters of uh, that we were operating in whether it be afghanistan or iraq how they were kind of maturing over time um to to give a little bit of perspective, when the military first goes into uh, an area that they're operating, they, they, you go in there and there's not a lot there. You kind of are bare bones. You're, you're taking care of basic needs. You're, the soldiers are, are doing cooking all the food, and and you're, you might be on the move. You might be living in a tent, maybe. Um, you might get to live in a building. Uh, but as that matures and logistically over time is, is the um, is the area begins to get more stabilized and we're, we're working for longer periods of time there, then things like contracts are put into place and, and um, some of the amenities of being able to work there for long periods of time get get easier from some aspects um where showers are set up and some of the more um enjoyable things to to take your mind off of what you're doing there because it's not it's not hollywood where bullets are flying every minute of every day um there were times where that happened but that's probably the thing that resonates the most with me about my first deployment is I don't, I don't remember a great degree of fear going into uh, Afghanistan that first first deployment, uh, but I do remember the uncertainty, um, kind of the the hey, what's it going to be like when when I get off this plane in Afghanistan? Am I going to have to duck for cover? Um, or am I just going to roll off the back of this thing and pull the helicopter? Are we going to pull the helicopter off the back of this uh, big cargo aircraft and, and have to duck for cover? Or is it, are we going to walk off and be like, okay, this is Afghanistan. And then at some point, whenever it happens, um, we might be in contact with the enemy. Um, for my first deployment, I recall that, that, 9-11 had happened, in, of course, in September, and now we fast forward into early uh, 2002, and we, I got a phone call on a, I, I was kind of in a rhythm, right? I mean, we were ready to go if needed, but there wasn't this anticipation that we were leaving tomorrow. So I got a phone call on a Saturday morning that said, come in, and you might not be going back home. And I was able to go back home that night. But when I went back in on Sunday morning, I didn't go back home. Uh, we got on an airplane, loaded some helicopters in the back of a big cargo airplane and, and took off. And we were gone for six plus months, seven months, whatever it was. Um, so to really have your life in order to a point of, all right, I'm gone. Um, where wherever my life back home is that's where it's going to be because you don't really have time to to change things up or go pack something up you, you kind of had to be ready to go as your bio says you were deployed six different times is there a period during that time that was the most significant to you or a particular deployment that was most memorable mm. um I, I there definitely wasn't one that was most memorable. They all had their challenges in, in different ways. Um, it's, it's, 
that I, I, my wife was is also in the army or was in the army at the time. And, and she and I, for our first four deployments, were at least in the same country at the same, relatively the same time. We weren't necessarily right beside each other every time. And there were other times where we were um, living right, right there beside each other. Um, there, there were events that happened that made each of those deployments memorable. Uh, in their own right, some of those events were uh, were there in, in theater that happened. Um, some of them were back home. Uh, one one that comes to mind that was back home. I mentioned the first four. My wife and I were together. Um, one of the last two, uh, my son was born, but he's born back home and I'm, I'm deployed. So that, that's something obviously that, uh, that is memorable and, and then being able to come home and see him for the first time was, was really cool. But that those deployments are really how my wife and I can kind of, when somebody says, Hey, what year did this happen? Um, whatever event it is in life, I mentally go back to those deployments because those are kind of the, the tick marks on in my life and in, in Robin's life and our whole family's life where we can keep track of, oh, yeah, that happened during this deployment and we were living in this place. So that means that this sequence happened for those events. So those are kind of the, the reference points for our deployments, if you will. Um, there were, were unique things that happened um, when we would take vacations from combat because there were some times where we would get um, a week or so of, of rest and recoup, R&R leave uh, to, to go and take some vacation outside of theater. And, and my wife and I took advantage of that. Uh, one time we were able to go to Germany, France, and Spain. Uh, another time we went to Italy, um, but to come out of combat and go to Italy for a week and then go back into it um, definitely challenges you mentally to be able to come out and take that kind of a break, but then jump back into it. So um, those deployments all offered just a unique set of circumstances. Um, none of which I think is more or less memorable than the other, but definitely some that that all of them had some kind of challenges associated with it, as well as, as some rewarding experiences that accompanied them. Okay. Almost all veterans would comment that it was the people that they met that was the most memorable part of de their deployments. During your deployment, did who did you encounter that had made a lasting impact on you? So there were definitely um, a myriad of different people, as you very accurately stated in the first part of the question, that, that veterans definitely appreciate the people that are beside them, um, their, their teammates or, or whatever it might be that, that worked alongside them. There was, uh, from early on, uh, there's, there's a group of guys that, and, and gals that still come together to this day. I mean, we get together in person at, at least every two years, if not every year, to, um, to visit and, and they're lifelong friends of mine. And, and that was that first unit that I, I served with. Um, and, and unfortunately we, we've lost some of those guys. Um, one of which I used to fly with all the time and he, he influenced me in ways that, that I'll, I'll go back to that perspective thing that I talked about of being able to really put things in perspective and, um, and appreciate whether you needed to stress out about it or not, um, whether you needed to, to 
influence it and push a, a, a different event or a different um, series of events, whether you needed to try and influence those greatly or whether it was something that wasn't really going to have much of a significant impact and being able to maintain that perspective uh, is, is such an important thing for me. Um, and then you you fast forward to some of the later deployments and and it it wasn't necessarily groups of people but individuals uh later on um that when when i go to my time as a as a squadron commander in in my last deployment um there were some of the key people within that squadron that i was able to rely on and that I could confide in um, about different events that were happening. And you find those people, those what is often referred to as a trusted agent, right? You, you find those people that you can rely on, whether it's a dear friend or whether it's, it's a, um, another person within the unit that just you can confide in and you can trust that they're they will remain confidential with with the information you're sharing with them and, and give you a candid feedback rather than treat you uh like you're the boss and tell you what you want to hear they're going to give you that candid feedback that you value so much as a leader um when when you're a leader in an organization i think one of the toughest things to do is is really gain the feedback from the members of that organization in a candid way so that you can you can really steer your leadership in a way that's going to influence positively for that organization. You have received many different awards and badges throughout your career. Which of these awards or honors is the most important to you and why? The I I, I don't I don't necessarily think that any one of those things that goes on my uniform is uh, is the most important um, or stands out in a certain way because uh, largely those ribbons those although those were awarded to me there were there were people around me that I worked with that contributed to the events uh, that that maybe led to me being awarded those those ribbons. Um, maybe a, a, a funny story that that accompanies one of the badges that I earned um, that that wasn't necessarily a, a series of events, but a school that you go to was the air assault badge. And uh, what makes that that a little bit funny is the the fact that. I went to that school multiple times. I went to that school as a cadet and I, I blew one of my knees out. I went back as a lieutenant um, early on and I hurt my other knee. Um, and that one, uh, my wife was actually in the same exact class and she went all the way through and I got hurt. So of course she gives me jabs about her making it through and me not being tough enough to um and i went back a third time and i was actually in the school when i got that call on the saturday morning that said hey you're you're going and you might not be you know come in and you're going to deploy you might not be going back home and i was in the middle of the school so of course i didn't finish i i went to afghanistan um so when i finished that time i figured hey I'm not going back to that school. The good Lord doesn't want me to finish that school. He's taken me out of it three times already. So fast forward almost 20 years and, and I am selected to go be a squadron commander. And lo and behold, I'm selected to be a squadron commander at that same location where that school is, is a, a opportunity to go and, and all the leaders that are in that, in that unit go through that school. So I thought to myself, well, now I'm almost 40 years old and I'm going to have to go back through this school. So, of course, at, at this time, now I, I go back and I successfully get through the school and earn the badge. So that air assault badge um, was over 20 years in the making, I guess. 
for for only a 10-day school. When civilians think about military service, they often mostly think about deployments and combat. However, we know that veterans serve in a variety of capacities, both abroad and here in the U.S. Along with your six deployments, you also served in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon. Can you tell us some about your role and experiences while serving there? Yeah, wa Washington, D.C. is a, a unique animal for for uh, um, for a soldier to for for any service member to go into, um, especially one that goes in there the first time after they spend a lot of time in what we call a tactical unit. You know, and you're spending time with with soldiers every day. You're you're um, everything is about the war fighting skills, uh, and then you you get tossed into this this beast of some higher echelon staff, either the army or the, the joint staff, the staff that works for the chairman of the joint chiefs. And it, it's a different animal. Um, but it's, it's so incredibly ironic that the same skill sets that make you successful in those tactical units are the ones that are going to make you successful there. And those are the skill sets of being able to build relationships and, and, uh, anticipate requirements and 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 be able to work with people um it, it definitely is is about that and when i went there the first time um my wife was going to work for the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff and i was uh going to be on the joint she was working directly for for the chairman and i was going to be working um on, on his staff and it was uh, a cool time for us as a family because um, now she is in a position that that was different from what I was before then we were both kind of had equal demands on our our lives from the military career but now she's going to be ha have additional demands that required a significant amount of travel um, and being able to travel with the chairman. So it was a time where I, I took primacy um, on being able to care for our kids at home and enable her to be successful in her job. And, um, and it was really enjoyable for me. I mean, I, I had a great time working in, in that, I guess, area where where I was able to contribute to to our family in a way that enabled her to be successful outside the home as equally as she was here at home. And that's a little bit non-traditional when we think about how our grandparents lived, right? There were definitely some fixed roles for genders in the home for those generations. And and we begin to see now with with generations and, and future generations are, are breaking out of some of those gender roles of of how uh, a family um, operates. And the other piece that we really can appreciate from that first time in Washington, D.C. was that it truly takes a village to to raise children. I mean, we had so much support from family and friends and and um, and other resources that we would lean on to help raise our children while she and I were both trying to balance the demands of a military career. You've only been retired for a short period of time now. How did you know it was time for you to move on from military service? So there were, there were some, um, there were some things that influenced it from within the army that, it said, hey, it, it's time to move on. Um, and, you know, when you talk about promotions and selections and all of those sorts of things, and, but my, my wife retired a year before I did. Um, so about the time she was retiring, shortly thereafter, I was um, making my decision to retire. Um, and there were a lot of things that influenced that. Um, some of them were were very much on the personal side. Uh, my mom at the time was, was ill. Um, there were uh, 
professional things that influence that, um, that that I just alluded to. But the fact that um, my wife had already retired, um, my kids were getting to an age that uh, both Robin and I, Robin, my wife, and I thought that, hey, our, our kids are going to need our parent, their parents around more than um, the demands of a military career could offer uh, the flexibility for us to be around. Although our, our children gained an incredible amount of resilience being, being military children, um, we felt that it was, it was the right time for, for not only her to retire, that she had already retired from the military, but for me to join her in the retired ranks and give a little bit of, um, stabilized home life for our kids. I mean, by the time my son was five years old, he was moving into his fourth house. So, um, that that built a lot of strength in them on being able to find friends where we went but it was also i mean a little bit of turmoil for them in moving schools and and doing having a, a different environment every other year that they had to to enter into has the transition been easy or hard for you um the the transition is is kind of a unique thing i think for every service member uh some service members might spend in in stress during their transition that hey, what what career is going to be next for me um for me it was uh not largely about the career that i would do next or or how i would make money and, and meet whatever financial demands our family might have, financial needs our family might have uh, after retirement. But Robin and I had the unique position where we were, were both going to be retired, uh, retired service members. So we, we didn't have necessarily financial needs um, from the sense of needing to put food on the table and a roof over our head. You know, we, we had two retirements that we could leverage and have the flexibility on where we were gonna, where we were gonna land professionally. Uh, additionally, she had already retired and gone through that transition and established herself in, in her next career, um, or at least in, in another job that was, uh, that was, providing for family financially. So there wasn't a lot of stress for me. I think for me, it was more about what was I gonna do? How would I, uh, how would I navigate it from, from a mental standpoint of, because I had this idea that in, in the military, I, I kind of found this exhilaration and chaos, right? I was okay with that and and i kind of thought that when i got through into retired life that things would slow down i would kind of become this easygoing person uh that i would almost change who i was and what was surprising to me uh, in the months after i retired that i still was the same person right i I, I still kind of liked a little bit of chaos in my life and excitement in my life. Um, so how was I going to, to navigate that? And I didn't become this different person overnight, kind of like I thought I might, I, but I, I definitely enjoyed those times where I, I could slow down and I had the flexibility of slowing down um, and, and not, having the demands of military life on us 365 days a year, but uh, periodically could could ebb and flow. And, and I have really met that 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 thirst for for chaos and a little bit of higher tempo by getting involved in different things uh, in my 
in my post-military life. Okay, we are basically at the end of our interview now, but we have a few general questions we would like to ask you if that's okay. Sure. You have some in incredible life experiences that most individuals we encounter do not have. Because of that, what life advice would you give to high school students like us who are getting ready to graduate and head into the real world? Wow. Uh, so, unfortunately, I think a lot of our older generations, um, they, they look to younger generations and they focus on how messed up that generation is or how that generation doesn't have the skill sets necessary to be successful because uh, the uh, everything's gone crazy or they don't understand what uh, what life is really like and and I'll I'll I take a different stance when looking at younger generations I take the stance of there's an incredible amount of talent and perspective and skill that exists in our young people to the degree that I never had to deal with. And, and a lot of that has to do with technology. Um, a, a lot of it has to do with, with how fast paced this world moves. And it's only going to get faster with, with more and more technology. And, and I applaud our young people for and in, in, in younger generations for being able to navigate life in a world that's so much faster paced and so much more well-informed than the world that I even grew up in, much less the ones that my parents and grandparents grew up in. So um, the fact that your generation, you should be proud of, of what you are and, and who you are um, because you have those talents. And when I talk about those talents, I mean, those, that innate experience within the world today to be able to navigate any challenges that, that are going to present themselves in front of you. So, um, first I would encourage you with that. Uh, second, I would offer to you that we've talked a lot about what I've done through my life. Um, and I've, I've told you a little bit about not only what I've done, but a little bit about who I am. So the advice that I give young people today is who you are is it's, it's much more than what you've done. It's influenced by what you've done. You've had some crucible experiences in your life thus far that are going to shape you into the person that you are. Um, and a great way to kind of discern that is to use emotion versus experience. Um, what, what types of things exude emotion in you? Where do you find joy? Uh, where do you find satisfaction? Where do, you, where do you find fear? What types of situations cause those things? And those are the things that are shaping who you are as a person versus um, versus what you've done in life. So uh, I, I would encourage you to take the time to discover who you are, um, define much, be, much further beyond what you've done in life. This is a podcast that seeks stories of courage, resilience, service, and teamwork. Do you have any memories from your service that match these themes that we have not already discussed? You, there, there's a hundred different stories um, throughout uh, our careers that, that we have that, that have traits through this. Um, some things that, that gave me resilience uh, is, and, and I define resilience as, as being able to exhibit courage uh, over time, right? When, when you can exhibit courage day in and day out, regardless of what's presented to you, then, then I, I think you're well on your way to being a resilient person. Um, 
for me, it was, I think it, it can be illustrated uh, from going over the different deployments that we look at in a combat situation of being able to get in the helicopter, not knowing what was going to happen on that day and continue to go and fly. And one of the entertaining stories that I, I tell folks is, uh, is I was in a, on a deployment where Robin and I were in the same country. We weren't necessarily side by side, but I knew generally where she was. And I, I'm not sure if I mentioned, but Robin was in logistics, right? And uh, specifically earlier in our career, she was in aircraft refuel um, and worked around that. And there was a time where I, I had flown into a refuel point um, and I knew she was around. And, and I think maybe we had reached out to, to say, hey, there's a possibility I'll be coming through there today. And lo and behold, I land. And uh, I, I look out, and there's this little short person coming up. And sure enough, it, it, it was Robin. And and I hadn't seen her in I don't I don't know maybe uh, three or four weeks. But I, I see her at this refuel point, and and you think, all right, how many people in the world get to see their their spouse and in that kind of an environment um, for? just a brief period of time. And it it gives you this sense of happiness or this sense of hope that, hey, you're, you're gonna get through this um, because you, you're gonna get through it and you, you see someone that you love very much that's enabling you to do something that you love to do um, and, and being able to to tie all of that together, you know, in in a way that you're you're living a values-based life, you're both fighting for the same thing, you're doing it with someone you love, um, and you get this unique intersection of being able to see each other after so much time. That that's one of those experiences that that I kind of hang on to um, from our, our time in the military that that was just special special for us to to be able to continue our lives together and, and look fondly back on our military service from from that kind of a perspective that um i, I i'm not really it, it doesn't it's not a specific example of any one of those traits but maybe a, a, a good intersection of, of all of them coming together a lot of people think, a lot of people want to honor our military and find ways to show appreciation. What do you think is the best way that civilians today can honor those who have served or are serving the military? Well, you're, you're doing one of them right now. And that that's offering a platform or providing a platform to capture the stories. Um, and, and, being able to capture the stories of of our veterans uh does a lot right um it it does a lot for our veterans having an opportunity to tell their story um, and it, i i think it it helps close a gap and and that's a gap of um what a civilian's perspective is of what a veteran does uh, or has done and, and and close that gap of what the civilian thinks has happened versus what the veteran experienced. So it closes that knowledge gap of, of experience, but it, it also helps helps reveal to to all that a veteran um, is a person. Uh, a veteran isn't just a byproduct of what they've done but also they, they have that, those similar emotions that I talked about before. I mean, we, we get scared, we have happiness, we laugh, we do all those things. Um, so, so I think providing that opportunity to tell a story does so much to, um, 
to to kind of tell that story about who a veteran is. Is there anything that you would like to add that we have not covered in this interview that you would like to cover? Yeah, I, I think so. And and that's, you know, what what happens now, right? My my service is over, my wife's service is over. Um what what's life like beyond transition? So transition has happened and then and then how do we spend our lives now? Uh, fortunately, um, I'm able to to stay connected with the army and and being able to um, assist them with a program that I helped design of selecting future leaders for the army. Um, but that, that takes me out of the loop for a couple of months a year. Um, but then the other 10 months of the year, I'm a dad at home and get to, to really, uh, spend time with our kids and help, help kind of manage day-to-day life where my wife took this kind of left-hand turn, right? She was a, a officer in, in the United States Army, um, spent a brief period of time, about a year, working with this incredible nonprofit in, in D.C. called the Military Women's Memorial, and then decided that, hey, um, she was really passionate about this, this idea of healing people. And I don't mean she's now a doctor, but she uh, she now heals people through laughter. She's a, a, a one a stand-up comic, two a producer, and and three someone who works with veteran affairs, um, in in helping people heal through laughter. So, um, really a unique uh, story that she has in in her own right of being able to go out and and spend time with veterans specifically and help enable them to heal through their own laughter. Because what, I mean, you just feel good after you can go out and laugh for a while, but I'm just incredibly proud of her and pleased to be able to enable her career in in comedy um, through a, a number of different applications. So I just wanted to, to mention that part because she's she's just running circles out there uh, and and really really putting forth an incredible amount of effort to um, ensure that our, our veterans are able to tell their stories through comedy. And I, I think that's just an, an awesome way to spend her post-military life as well. Is there anything else you would like to cover? No, I, I think that, that we've hit on everything. Thank you Girl. for doing this today. Thank you. Too, y'all did an awesome job. What an incredible interview and experience it is to participate in interviews with veterans like Mr. Johnson. I agree. Mr. Johnson has told a very interesting and intriguing story. These stories he told of courage and resilience is one I'll never forget. There was so much that we have learned from him and his courage. He shined a lot among many people of bravery, courage, and resilience. One One of the things that stood out was how the military not only affects the person, but also friends and family. He talked about how he was stationed and ended up meeting his wife after they were unsure on the next time they would see each other again. This is just one story of many that shows the amount of sacrifice that numerous have to go through when serving in the military. This interview allowed me to experience seeing things that are part of the military in a different way. There are many factors and important things that go along with joining the military. I have always showed respect towards people who serve this country, but this shows me why they should be respected much more. The way he talked about all of these things he had to do simply just showed how brave he really was. He never knew exactly what he was going to do, where he was going to be, and he never knew what was going to happen. Mr. Johnson is a great inspiration and has a very interesting and intriguing story to tell. I feel this project is important because it gives veterans a chance to share their stories, 
and it educates people on how veterans experience many hard things when they serve our country. And it also preserves their personal narratives about their time in uniform for future generations. Thanks for listening to the Operation Crest podcast. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and share. Today's hosts were Autumn Smith and me, Dakota Osmond, and our guest was Kayton Johnson. The music was provided royalty-free by Comma Media. The questions were written by us, and the editing was done by our teachers. Until next time, see ya!